All right, y'all. This is this was completely, completely unexpected. I swear to y'all, I'm telling the God honest truth. It's All Star Weekend. It's a lot of All Star stuff going on. All Star Game is tonight, but I just so happened <clears throat> to come across the documentary, and I remember when this trailer dropped, I was hype as hell for it. Couldn't find it. I think it was on Netflix or something like that. I don't have Netflix. I got Tubi, and neither one of them had the horror movies I need. But speaking of horror movies. Went on demand when I got in after I made something to eat and found Hard Noir, A History of Black Horror. This documentary, yo, when I tell y'all, I had to do commentary on this. 83 minutes long. I got 15 minutes in and was nerding out so hard that I was like, you know what? I have to stop this shit. I have to start it over. And since I'm only 15 minutes in, I'm not that far in. I'm just going to do commentary as this goes along because Dwayne Jones and uh, Ken Foray and Rusty Cundeef and Ernest Dickerson and all these uh, black directors and writers and like just all these people attached to this and what they're talking about. Oh, yeah. And this can definitely be uh, <laughs> a Black History Month episode, if you will. I already said how I feel about black history just being limited to one month but i feel like this is very fitting this is long overdue so let me stop talking about it and just get into it because there's some shit that i'm finding out in here that just really requires me to just like i said i was 15 minutes in so it's more than enough time left for me to give genuine reactions oh shutter is what this was on okay it's a shutter original somehow i missed that i think i was too excited always loved horror. It's just that horror, unfortunately, hasn't always loved us. No lies detected. Still can't believe I found this, man. And I love that the people speaking are just in the theaters talking amongst each other when the segment comes about. And when I say they went back and like, they did their research, extensive research for this here, man. It's Ken Sejos and Loretta Devine, yo. Jesus, man. Rachelle True from the craft. God damn it. This is this is gonna be good. And that was Naomi Harris. I keep forgetting she was in uh they just showed a clip from twenty eight days later. Paula Jai Walker. Now this clip they're watching, of course, this is Get Out, the the part with Keith Stanfield in the beginning of the movie. Yo, serious though, like a sore thumb out here. 
Lakeith. Oh yeah. Walking down the walking down the sidewalk at night in, in a in a suburban neighborhood, suburban neighborhood on the cell phone by himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shit. All of them. <laughs> I've been there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was the perfect black horror story. Yeah, really. Yo, <laughs> Yeah, they did him dirty and get out. at ease because for me, there was so much writing on this film in that, is he going to get this right? Not just in quality, but for the way that we understand black people. There's too many white people are getting hurt. When I found out they were going to let me actually direct Get Out, I knew something big was going to happen. <laughs> I thought there was a chance something very bad could happen, that I would get run out of town. That, you know, I thought there's a possibility that people, uh, you know, don't want to see entertainment about something that, um, uh, you know, has been traditionally dealt with, with a certain reverence. But I also thought, you know, this is the movie I wanted to see. Exactly. Shout out Jordan Peele, too, man. You need to answer them DMs and them tags on Instagram, bro. He might not be the, the magical Negro or the sacrificial Negro or the first to die and all those tropes. So it's like, this is a story. To a she said the magical Negro, the sacrificial Negro, or the first to die. Jordan Peele, get out. It's deep. This had never happened before to have an Oscar nominated black horror movie. And I think it really shows how horror films can really talk about things that are affecting us. Black history is black. Ernest Dickerson, by the way, he knows all about horror, man, because my story, and I'm sticking to it, Juice was a horror movie. And Ernest Dickerson did that. Then he went on to do Demon Knight and Bones and a couple episodes of The Walking Dead. So he's known horror for sure. As we know it today, we can go back to films that perhaps wouldn't be on our radar as horror. There's a character, Gus. Gus is a white actor in blackface who is depicted as being in pursuit of a young white girl. Which I had no, I had no idea this was a movie, and it's actually called Birth of a Nation. So it's like, what was the idea behind? Especially if you were a black person. The new one. Those people at that point were getting to know what African Americans were like through that film because they lived in communities where they had no African Americans. This was the only source of information, and a lot of people got the wrong impression of who we are, certainly. It's one of the first films to be screened in the White House, in Woodrow Wilson's White House. You know, that Woodrow Wilson said that's exactly the way it is. Oh, uh, you know, I mean, he, 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 he was a contributor to the problem. They remind me of either like somebody like one of my uncles or my grandpa, Keith David and Ken Foray, man. That's OG status for real. Them dudes, like, I would love to just be a fly on the wall and just listen to their stories. As the solution to the black menace this is a movie that really solidifies that there's this sort of odd black lust on the part of black men towards white women you see it time and time again then throughout the horror genre from king kong uh-uh. to Candyman. Mm. it reigned as the picture of black life 
for so many years. Hollywood could use its chucking and jiving to create fear around black people, especially fear around black men. It sets up black life and culture as so deficient and so deviant. And I think we see that kind of history informing race relationships even today. Dr. Clinton. Filmmakers in this period really want black actors to be what they think blackness is. Don't bite on this time, Ms. Yoga. These are the kinds of films that are coming out in the 20s and 30s, leading up to the blackface shit is irking me. But you know, Oscar Michaud, who is one of the first African American Oscar Michaud said he was one of the first African American directors, and I had never known this until I watched this today. Or I watched as much as I did today. I've never, like, as a writer and just a film geek, I, I'm just so ashamed of myself that I did not know who Oscar Michaud was. So I definitely got to read up, do my research. Oscar Michaud's making arguments that we are equal and to be respected and to be valued as human beings. Spencer Williams' film from 1940, Son of Ngagi, is, is an interesting case. Its genesis was a little bit odd because there was a film called Ngagi. Ngagi was an earlier low-budget effort by a white director, which basically purported that black Africans were mating with gorilla-like creatures. Ngagi promises that it is a true story and that this mating has produced half ape, half human babies. The whole thing is a scam. Even whites were like, well, that's not true, you know. <laughs> the Son of Ngagi is basically considered the first black made horror film. The makeup isn't great, and they didn't have much of a budget. <sighs> but Spitzer got it. And I look at that to this day as a testament. It stars a black woman as a scientist. She has. Do I keep calling her Paula Jai Parker or Paula Jai Walker? Because her last name is Parker. That it resides there. That she has been taming and sort of helping this ape man to thrive. It does what I think it will. I've done more for humanity than anyone else on earth. So Spencer Williams actually kind of does the first black women in STEM kind of film, you really get to see the black middle class on full display. You're seeing a bunch of black folks coming back from a wedding. It doesn't sound revolutionary, but in that era, in 1940, when did you ever see black people just being themselves? Right. It was a way to show that not all black people were the way they had been depicted in films up to that time. So we have a doctor and a lawyer, everyone is well-spoken, and in that way, it was a slice of black life mm -hmm. that, to me, is one of the most important aspects of that film. And if you know it opens some doors up. about television, Spencer Williams sounds familiar, right? He starred in the television situation comedy Amos and Andy. Oh, Andy, I love jokes. <laughs> then you're gonna like this one, because I bought this gun at a joke store. So what's sad about that is that people will always know Williams as from Amos and Andy. But what Spencer Williams contributes to the history of film is absolutely unmatched. He sets up what we really probably think of as modern black cinema today. 
by this time, Hollywood realized that horror was big business, so especially during the Great Depression. I think people were looking for that kind of escapism in films, and film going was like huge. That's when you get those Universal Studio classics, like Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Mummy, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein. I love all of those. Which films, they can't seem to get the fuck right to this day. Thirties, they weren't really big on racial representation. Back in the thirties and forties, in those days, you know, there are only a few roles for black people. It's like a quiet servant who just basically furniture tribesmen, like <laughs> called him furniture, priestesses, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It was that like, was <laughs> yeah, there was like the comedic uh, buffoon who was like scared of his own shadow. This dude looks just like my homie Lamar. Nighttime Morning, yes, was the last actor to play that kind of character. And that was in spite of the baby. And after that, the, 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 I was just saying they were ready to move on. We are moving. A soldier they just showed looked like Simon Pegg or his doppelganger from back in the day or something. For servants. So in laboratories, there's really no place for blacks in that space. In the 50s and 60s, no studio wanted to put a black scientist in there. And that was a place where they felt black people weren't allowed in. So it's all like a hidden figure of how, how hard it was for black people to get into the space race and that sort of thing. So it has another reason I think that black people pretty much disappeared during the whole you know, the decade or two. In all of those classic alien movies, yeah. like the Day the Earth Stood Still and all that stuff, there are no black people, but the other... So two black female filmmakers I've never heard of until today. I love this shit, man. I really do. But you hear what they're saying, though, like the, the minorities or the black people were depicted as like the monsters. It's like a metaphor almost. The bulging lips looks just like those awful ads for niggerhead shrimp. It's like first Jesus we were in it, we were Christ. Like yeah. Then we were in it, but we looked like aliens. So here I am, this ten-year-old in a drive-in theater with my mom. But even then, I knew. That Jesus, what movie that is that? Pulling people into quicksand. About blackness, about race. I knew that King Kong was a metaphor for blackness. I know King Kong was made at the time it was made, but damn. Stand-ins for black folks, but we're not actually present in the story. But then there's this moment. Night of the living dead. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Greatest movie of all time. scared easily not a living dead i think gave me nightmares <laughs> it was a frightening frightening film and the black and white of it plays such a huge part in what makes it scary all law enforcement agencies and the military have been organized to search out and destroy the marauding ghouls there's a zombie apocalypse, and we have a small group of folks who all sort of converge on a cabin house to survive. It has a black protagonist in Dwayne Jones. You can be the boss down there. I'm boss up here. Yes, sir. In charge. If you stay up here, you take orders from me. Never it hadn't been done. The white woman who Dwayne Jones is essentially saving 
is more creeped out by the fact that there's zombies outside than the fact that there's a black person in the house. I was probably way too young to see it, but Yo, I was George Bill, silly as shit. fascinated by the fact that there was this beautiful, handsome black man. That was the first time I probably saw somebody black in a movie, and they weren't a criminal, and they weren't a gangster, and they were the hero. At that time, there was not a black character who was really a man who was and, and you know again who took charge of his fate he wasn't waiting for the white man to save him Dwayne Jones's performance stood out for me by that point I knew I wanted to be an actor and I said okay, Jesus I Christ man it's him. poetry and motion it's listening to Tony Todd talk about Dwayne Jones play Ben and Tony Todd would go on to play Ben in the remake of Night of Living Dead it's poetry and motion Assassination after assassination. We had riot after riot. Civil rights movement and all those movements were combining together. And we were producing those those men that were standing up and saying, not here, not again, not me. At the same time, he comes out and he does, he does his film. And that's the character. That's the man. I wonder if Ken Ferret, that's Ken Ferret talk. I wonder if he is going to explain if that inspired his role as Peter and Dawn of the Dead. I hope they talk about Dawn of the Dead. They got to. Years later, I got to know George Romero. I asked him, I said, why Dwayne? And he said, the role wasn't even written. It wasn't written black. Dwayne just happened to be the best actor to show up on that day. This is like in the 60s True. rest in peace shout out Dwayne Jones people in sit-ins and stuff like that Jim Crow era exactly yeah. it just blew my mind that this was a black guy who was doing all this taking charge he was the hero mm. even though it didn't turn out for him in the end alright man hit him in the head right between the I can remember seeing this and not being able to move Okay, Jeez. let's go get him. That's another one. I mean, I was shocked as a kid by the Night Living Dead ending, but. Mob, which had to look a lot like white mobs that were roaming throughout the South, menacing black folks and terrorizing black folks. Uh-huh. You see lynchings, you think of. Whew, the imagery here, boy. Just they don't hold back on this, on this documentary, y'all. They really don't. I love it. Sitting there going, my God, did this just happen? George Romero tells the story of putting the film cans in the trunk of his car, driving to New York City, and they hear it. They hear mm-hmm. it on the radio. Martin Luther King. Yep. And I can't imagine what happens in that car, what that feeling is like, the, the crush, the blow, the sinking. And I want to believe that they know what they have. Mm-hmm. Night of the Living Dead Absolutely. becomes what it is. Exactly they wanted him to change the ending to what's happening in this country while he's filming it. I think the tenseness of the time and the turbulence that was going on in society and the political drama all fed into people all of a sudden having a need to want to see themselves on screen. And that gave birth to the black exploitation period. Talk about it. 
I think at this point I had not seen the rest of this, so all this is new. And it's really a portmanteau for black and exploitation. Blacks are on the super fly. Black audiences are and really joyful for the inclusion, Foxy Brown. but the representations are sometimes just not right. We went from maids to pimps and hoes. Mm -hmm. At that time, we didn't use that word profile, but we were uh, horrifically profiled. I like to wear hats, and I bought me a new hat. And some white boy yells at me, hey, pimp. You know, and, and <laughs> I, I think he's thinking that he's, think he's complimenting me. The big hats and collars, and they were images that were perpetrated. Richard by Lawson, man. White I think that's Bianca Lawson's dad, actually. Exploited these images. Oh, yeah, they getting the OGs on here for real. Sam Arkoff. Richard Lawson down at Pete was in Blue Hill Avenue. He played the uncle who's talking to Alan Payne. He said, it's the rock, Tristan. <laughs> there are studios who get in on the black exploitation craze. And AIP's business model was, we're not going to leave. We're going to look, see what's happening out there, what might be popular, and then we're going to get on kind of the backside of this and produce more of it. Theirs was a strictly for-profit budget model, investing as little as they could and hoping something stuck. Their films would go <laughs> on just a few screens in some cases, often in black neighborhoods. Very low investment, very low quality. At the time, I wasn't astute enough to look at AIP's budget, but they weren't making any Damn, William Crane, I didn't know he directed Blackula. So we decided we were going to do something else. And I wasn't the favorite person there for them no, because uh, we had something else in mind. And the movie opens with with him with his with his queen trying to argue with Count Dracula to end the transatlantic slave trade. To totally cease the slave trade. When is the last time black audiences had seen themselves? Wow. In the I forgot. Um, as erudite and intelligent and holding this open in a blackula. How they made. Uh, Blackula's wife, his queen, look is insane. You find merit in But it was a big deal. Kelly Joe Minter and Miguel Nunez. Let's go. I think they're possibly the most fascinating That's all I remember. What? A black Dracula. And it gave you a sense of something that I can't even explain. I wanted to be an actor. Something opened up. I think that affected me in a way that probably I don't even understand. I was uh, still in high school, and I had I had dreams of being the first black Dracula. <laughs> but when William Marshall came out with it, I was like, "Who could be mad about that?" I mean, I, I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't just because he was. I loved William Marshall. When I was a kid, the the vampires and the Draculas that had been going on were these really soft, metrosexual white guys who didn't really have an, an energy to them for me, and then. Was that Barnabas okay, Collins? So he's this 
yummy, yummy, chocolate, dark, sexy man. And so it was sort of, it was this really confusing thing as a child. She's pretty complimentary about her. I love it. (laughs) She loves her Ben, yo. And I had really experienced that with a villain before. So um, I would say Blackula scared the fuck out of me. I was proud that a black man was Yep, Ken Seagulls. Loretta Devine. I love these, the, who they're pairing these uh, people up with. Because I'm sure your crew was predominantly white. Oh, everybody was white. All right. I can't re- right now. I can't yeah. remember anyone else blocking was on that set. There was something of a resentment <laughs> on the part of many producers who didn't want our voices to. Oh wow, William Marshall in '91. And create a, a new kind of genre. He still looks the same as when he. Well, he looked the same as he did in Blackula, black, except he was gray in '91. And so there was a mix of white and black. And right. It, was, just, it really worked. And once the music was supposed to start. Kids were supposed to be dancing, and watch the AD, the assistant director. He had the black couples, and he had white couples. Mm-hmm. So he didn't his, mix it up. No, he didn't. Mm-hmm. He didn't. I mean, he didn't have gloves to throw down, but I said, "Hold it, we're not going to do this. This is what you're going to do. You're going to mix these people up." Hell yeah! And it went all the way to it went all the way up to Sam Arkoff. He got some resistance, but his pushback helped even the higher-ups doing this film understand that he was making something really meaty and meaningful. It makes the film so memorable and impactful even to this day. Right. So when filmmakers had balls, man, you know, it wasn't a bunch of cooks in the kitchen telling a director what the fuck to do on on the set of their movie. At least 20 yards. Respect. Then I asked them for a high-speed camera, which would be slow-motion camera. Right, okay. I didn't want to do it. I wasn't going to get it. This went on for at least a week. Right. So I was waiting for this camera to show up. It never did show up. On the morning that we got ready to do that, this extra van pulls up. And they gave it to you. And these guys come out with this high-speed slow-motion camera. Okay. They decide to give it to you. I bet they did. Yeah, I they didn't start seeing those dailies, right. right? People are still talking about yeah. that shot. Yeah, this freaked me the fuck out when I saw uh, Blackula. This chick running down the hallway in slow motion like this. But I love what he said. It's like, you know, they he, they started seeing the dailies, getting that feedback, and they got the man what he needed. You know, you want him to make this movie, get the man what he needs to get it done. Scream, Blackula, scream, I did. That's any director, really. Pam Greer, Don Mitchell. And um, a host of other wonderful black actors. I'm a Pam Greer. Damn, I forgot she Pam Greer was in this. Super fun. Which to me is fun because, in my opinion, it's one of the only times they let her act. Exactly. Like she really got to be a real person and not a sex symbol. Stay away. Wow. Who are you? This is when you start to see women really emerge women are now starting to take the center stage how about that jesus man pam Greer was a beast back in the day yes and she's like a a historian of black antiquity you know um the whole diaspora when the white horror movies the voodoo is always like the the evil force 
yeah. the villain, but in like Scream, Lucky with Scream, it was like the force of good. It was kind of exactly they relied on it to to conquer his curse. Basically, they were he, mm. they were using it to remove his curse. The cross horror's history voodoo is explicitly assigned to black people. All black people know voodoo, and it's really helpful if they're in Louisiana. How do you kill someone with voodoo? Eve's Bayou, though. You often see they talk about black voodoo. I wonder if they're gonna talk about venom with uh commonly Megan Good. Black women be voodoo that was a voodoo based slasher. Things of that nature and always use it for ill will. Black women Damn. were very much centered as frightening because they wielded power. Abby, the black exploitation era film, is a really good example of both fear of black women in general, but fear of black women's sexuality in particular. What the fuck? Abby. That's Abby. This, yeah, I have so never seen Abby before. Because she was pretty, uh-huh. but then she went crazy. <laughs> Yeah. What do you think of my powers now? Holy shit. What is this, like the Black Exorcist? Depicted as highly sexualized. This is uh, definitely something that, that came to the fore with Abby. On the one level, you could say she's sort of resisting her, her defined role as sort of a church wife becoming possessed by a sex demon who basically attacks men. <laughs> oh, she's possessed by a sex <laughs> demon. But what's not silly about it is it does point to this fear of black women and black womanhood. There is this I wonder if they would ever remake that cool shit. Movie. It's called Sugar Hill. <laughs> Sugars. Well, I know they weren't talking about the one with Denzel. I said Denzel. Who the hell is that that's in Sugar Hill? Uh, Wesley Snipes. There you go. was not suppressed by men and the system. She was smart, powerful, she was sexy. She Christ, was who is she? And she was willful. Tony, these throwback women on screen that they're showing, they were uh they were a different breed, man. So I don't even know who this actress is, but she's gorgeous. audiences to watch these movies on the big screen certainly came with a bit of conflict. So the black exploitation era probably gets mixed marks in terms of, you know, overall how black life was being portrayed. But you can see in, in even just these horror films that there's an effort to do more. One movie from the 70s that gets lumped in with black exploitation is ganja and hess it's really cool. Ah, i think dwayne jones was in this too bill gunn is his name bill gunn is a is a guy who a lot of people don't know about because he was a playwright a screenwriter he wrote the screenplay for a movie called the landlord the hal ashby did bill gunn was in episodes of the outer limits man from uncle you know they just wanted him to make a a horror film right you know with black folks in it and uh, the story is that he just, uh, I think the producers were out of town or something, and they took the whole cast and crew 
up to uh, some place in New York and rewrote it and shot it. Wow. You know, to, to talk about the history of blood, the history of African blood, and how it's passed down to the ancestors. This is a film oh, they tripping. a very, uh, erudite scholar who struggles with addiction. So he's using blood as an addiction metaphor. Which is what something the that hell? spoke to this director, and in his mind, I'm sure spoke to his community. He was recently turned into a vampire, and he falls in love with this woman. And oh, there he is, Dwayne Jones. Decide whether to turn her and, and, and that sort of thing. And it's very slow and, and meditative. Throughout the movie, I actually want to see this just because Dwayne no Jones is in it. He is, no matter how educated, is still very fearful of the police. There's no possible way for you to know this, but I'm the only colored on the block. <laughs> you see, and if another black man washes ashore around here, you can believe the authorities will drag me out for questioning. The police still remain a threat to even this very wealthy, well-educated black man. It got how fly Dwayne Jones was back in the day, man. It played a con and uh, got a lot of awards there. When it got to America... Not so much. Hollywood hates this movie because it doesn't look anything like the black exploitation films of this period. Mm. Frankly, it's a little too smart. It's a little too stylistic. The characters are really a bit too developed and realized. They wanted something cruder. Right. Of course, they hate it. For years, you know, I used to go to uh, some video stores and it was recut as a movie called Blood Couple. For the longest time, it was sort of in this netherworld where the true version of the film was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It was a film that I heard about for years before I was finally able to see it. Mm -hmm. Actually, Bill Gunn, when I was at Howard, came. He didn't come with a print of the film. He just came and talked about it? Yeah, because the only print was uh, available. The only print in existence was at the Museum of Modern Art. He was wow. a decent cat. And Ganjin Hess was his chance to elevate a vampire story into something more meaningful. They tried to get rid of all traces of that damn movie and make their own cut. That was making these broad stroke statements about what was going on in society. Too bad we didn't have a, you know, social media back then to campaign for the gun, the Bill Gun cut. You know how they do when they release the Snyder cut for Justice League. Was this medical experiment that spanned a 40-year time. There were these tests done on southern men in the south. Some had syphilis, some didn't, but they all thought they were being treated for what was called bad blood. They were promised free health care, free meals, free burial, but they weren't even treated. They were pretty much being tested to see the effects of syphilis over a lifetime. Some of those men lost their lives without knowing what they were fully consenting to, and there was this big investigation, and it came to a halt in the early to mid-1970s. You want to use me for some type of human guinea pig, is that it? Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, Blackenstein, those are films that were lackluster in quality, and maybe... Blackenstein out this bitch. ...medical experimentation on black males. So you couldn't help but notice those two things coming together. Maybe Universal should try that shit out. Black, make Blackenstein. Nah, because then they're going to they gonna cast everybody who I think they're going to cast. They're going to cast Kevin Hart, Michael Blackson, Tiffany Haddish, 
treated us as inhuman. And ain't no diss to them, but they gonna go with the it so people. You see a lot of that even today, and try to do a uh, like a black version of this is the end or some shit. Also, the girl with all the gifts, and even the first purge. Should you choose to actively participate? Yep, the first purge. I kept saying that's that was that's the best one in the series. Is first purge. Purge. That was the one for us. As sort of bad as some of these black exploitation films were, they just simply got worse. Blackenstein <laughs> is so bad, literally you can't see the film. I mean, you're like, did they purposefully shoot it in shadow or just completely in the dark? In addition to that, civil rights groups are protesting these films and saying that they're not good for black culture, they're not good for black representation. Wow, they were serious they about it back like then. Necessarily, what we saw, it was stereotypical, but those doors slowly started to open. So, as all things in life, there's a double-edged sword. We're finally seeing a number of movies where black people are, are on the big screen. And so you think, okay, the momentum is going to continue. And maybe in the 80s, we're going to get these representations right. Exactly the opposite happens. Slash a movie craze. Yep, there we go. Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Streets and all. I always knew that if there was somebody black in the horror film, they would be the first to die. Ooh. I remember when the first thing I did was when I got this script, was count the number of pages before I died. <laughs> we're not dead in the first 15 minutes. We're certainly dead by the last 30 minutes. It's like the red shirt phenomenon in Star Trek. You know you can't kill Spock, you can't kill McCoy, you can't kill Captain Kirk or Agura. So this poor crew member <laughs> with the red shirt is the one who's going to die. Mm. Very much where blacks were kind of stuck in horror for a I while. love the metaphors that she uses about first to die. Throughout. There were these sort of tongue in cheek references to it. Snag one. Snag one? Yeah, snag one and put him in the bucket. Oh, this was evolution. I seen this movie. The black dude dies first. You snag it. <laughs> so let's talk about black people always die first in horror movies. Let's talk it's about not it. Not entirely true. Well, an alien, Yafet, is actually the last male. Yes, he is. He is. He makes it a ways. And what do he do? Saving Veronica Cartwright's ass. But I want to kind of dispel a little bit of that myth. It often happens. Likes. But then at the same time, it can't always happen. Because black people play a particular role in horror films. For example, if you have a really horrible big kind of badass monster how do you evidence that that creature is as bad as it can get you need a black guy i'm sergeant buford brown but my teammates call me bubba if the monster beats that guy holy shit that monster must be a true badass you believe any of this voodoo bullshit i think that movie they just showed ken foray dying was the beat the was it the beyond or from beyond i've never seen it but he got Fucked up, it looks like. I, I did die, but not to live. Their roles are are tokens, and so they show up as sidekicks, incidental characters, which would be fine, except that often they don't exist for any other reason in the movie. They don't other than to get killed. 
needs of their own. They, their only concern is the welfare of the white protagonists. And that's where it becomes problematic. I looked at it as I was the chosen black person. I know, that's right. I didn't look at it in a negative way. I, at, I, was I, I didn't look at it in a negative way either. Absolutely. I was getting a check. Absolutely. So. Everybody who said anything about it, I'm in Friday 13th. You're not. So I didn't <laughs> like that. But it was really a, a good thing to be black and in any film in the 80s. Not much less a horror movie, but any film. I was like, hey, we're in this movie. <laughs> We're dying first. Whoa. Or we're sacrificing ourselves. Oh, yeah, that guy in um, Friday 13th 3. We're just being sassy. Dan, keep it up again. Girl, you put the luck in that window. But she lived. Kelly Jo Minter lives in every horror movie she's in. People Under the Stairs, Popcorn, Dream Child. to even imagine what it would feel like if you were surrounded by entertainment that was nothing but black people, right? I got on the set and I read the script and there were several racial things in it. Chocolate man. Yep, I remember. I called him Chocolate Man. Christine Taylor lucky that Rochelle and True Rochelle True didn't sock her in the face when she said that. And she got to get some get back. She made the chick's hair fall out. Ask for the ability to not hate those who hate me, especially racist pieces of bleach blonde shit like Laura Lizzie. Right. I think what Rochelle did was she gave us she gave us a way to kind of talk about our own experiences and be comfortable with them because a lot of us were in like all white spaces. I live in a white world. I mean, most of the time, all I'm around is white people. A lot of times when you're, you're living in the world, so you don't think of it being, oh, I'm a token or anything like that. You just think, oh, I finally got a position in this and it'll bring me other positions. So I think you think positively about, about what you're doing. It didn't really matter to me because we were working. I was so happy that I had a check. But on the set, it was absolute. I was the only black there. I think minorities all over the world. I mean, what about Lawrence Fishburne? He was in it. Their hero. This could kick the motherfuckers' ass all over Dreamland. Let's go. Every script that I read, and the leading man. 
Holy shit, Richard Lawson was in Poltergeist. But I understood where it was. I didn't, it was no resentment. God damn. In due time. Perhaps the quintessential. I did not peep until they just showed him in Poltergeist. Token character is Scatman Crothers in The Shining. Oh, God. The magical Negro that she was talking about. A terrific performer. R.I.P. Shout out to Catman. Scatman Crothers. Scatman Crothers, I said Catman. He sure did. Always bothered me because I was always thinking, well, if he's shining, he should have ducked that axe. At the time, Yo, Ernest Dickerson is funny, man. I didn't understand that I was seeing a trope called the sacrificial negro. Oh, she called him the sacrificial negro, not the magical negro. Literally just like puts themselves in the face of danger and dies in order for the white character to survive. And in the first Annabelle, poor Alfred Woodard has no investment in the film other than helping the white characters. Oh wow, she was in Annabelle. I didn't. I wouldn't have known. I never got into it. I know Alfred Woodard was in it. It was literally Alfred Woodard saying. Oh, I have lived my entire life just to save you. And it's just like, uh, <laughs> right. Oh my God. No dice. Nuts. I'm over that. I've seen that in almost every movie I grew up with as a child where, you know, the um, desexualized black woman mammy figure gives her life so that the little white girl can live. Um, that, that's noble, I guess. But um, I just feel like, why can't everybody live or everybody die? Balance is key, people. Of a nation where you have the faithful servant trope. That faithful servant trope is a really important image for a lot of races because it shows them that slavery and Jim Crow weren't so bad. Sometimes those secondary characters are just going to have to die because if they don't, the audience won't believe something scary is about to happen to the real characters who are not the black characters. Which is what I think gives birth to this other horrible trope, which is the magical Negro. Mom. Okay, here we go. She's talking about it. You in danger, girl. They have super <laughs> wisdom that helps like these white characters kind of thrive. It's one of those boxes that black people get put in, this sort of Uncle Remus thing. Where wow. Somehow afforded some mystical wisdom. Alex, your friend's departure shows that death has a new design for all of you. Oh, are they saying Tony Todd's character of Bloodworth in Final Destination is a mag- magical Negro? Around that age, like seventh, eighth grade, and like discovering scary movies, like you know what? I'm not gonna die because I'm not even in this. Like all my friends at the sleepover should be scared because you're all white. No one's coming for anybody who looks like me. No one's coming for us exactly because I'm not even in. It's the Reagan era, and black people become the face of what is bringing this country down. The nation is led to believe that their good, hard tax dollars are being put into these young women who are having babies and collecting welfare checks. And it's a propaganda message that really encourages the nation to turn its back on social programs. Mm. Black people become monstrous they they get deep into this man i'm trying to tell you 
This is wild. Couple stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. On the big screen, then what is encouraged is that whites flee the urban. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Amityville Horror, Halloween, all have pushed us out into the suburban, away from the urban, and so we have to imagine new monsters. Take a movie like Poltergeist, our homes are built on Indian burial grounds, and somehow it's radiating up and affecting us in awful ways, not because we're inherently evil, but because black and brown people are still the source of evil. One horror film with a lot of black faces in it that stands out from the 1980s is The Serpent and the Rainbow. Wes Craven. Wes Craven. And Wes Craven, I would say, was one of those filmmakers who really did try to be inclusive in his films. He also did Vampire Brooklyn and he did People, people Under the Stairs. stairs. Yep. The People Under the Stairs. You had a young Talk about it, mamas. leading a major film for Universal. It was ahead of its time. Yes, it was. Seeing it on the VHS and being like, this movie has a black child actor as the lead. What, what's going on here? I wish Jordan Peele would do a sequel or a reboot to People Under Stairs ASAP. I need that to happen. really captures is, you know, black fear of white spaces. You know, this thing we're talking about. And this particular white space, you know, this is stereotypical, but like... You know, this idea of, like, sadomasochism and leather, like, psychosexual shit. Like, this this, <laughs> this torturing stuff. <laughs> it all, all seems very white, you know? <laughs> There's no community here. All I see are a couple of... Had the whole hood. They had Roach in there, in, in the walls... A victim, and that I think was the most powerful and terrifying part about that movie. You look at Get Out; it's clear that my my deepest, deepest fears come to this idea of confinement. And then we get this beautiful Renaissance called the '90s. I actually am not afraid to say Candyman. 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 <laughs> It better be careful now. I'm a really hard person to scare. And Candyman was like one of the first things in a while that got me. It really got to you? Yeah, I mean, that shot with the open mouth inside the vacated apartment. I guess we kind of knew that we had something, but uh, we didn't know what. We had Tony Ritzman, was our DP, who did The Man Who Fell to Earth. We had Philip Glass, who's an incredible score, who kicked out the film. Beautiful city of Chicago is our backdrop. And we had an interracial conflict. Tony Todd is such a powerful actor and brings such gravitas to that role. Theater actor, man. Candyman is Tony Todd. And Tony Todd is Candyman for a lot of us. Out of the blue, I get a call from my manager at the time saying there's a script on that table. It's called Candyman. And I kind of my cockiness I hung up the phone <laughs> what are we talking about is this Sam Davis Jr. story and I'm way too tall how about that though and Tony Todd got the call from Candyman's script and he just hung up <laughs> little did he know Candyman was you know it was obviously unique because I was the first black 
a supernatural killer. I love Clyde Barker and Candyman being sort of like the patron saint of urban legends. I love that he's talking about it and he's producing a new one that's coming out this year. Um, invention, such a beautiful monster. Candyman is not a boogeyman. He was an artist who was happily doing his thing. He happened to fall in love with a woman that wasn't his race and he was lynched because of it. Not only that, they cut off his, his art hand. Bernard Rose directed Candyman based on a short story set in the UK by Clive Barker. They changed the original story from sort of a, a class conversation to one that is rooted in American racial history. It dealt with these social things. You have this white woman, you got this black guy, you got this backstory about this black guy and this white woman, and, and kind of, you know, how he is uh, attacked because of this relationship. It was a very terrifying film. A film that I love, but a film that, you know, is kind of problematic. We shall die together in front of their very eyes. Here again, we have a movie that echoes what happened in King Kong in the 30s. There's this black boogeyman, and he's in pursuit of this blonde white woman. He becomes She just, the way she rolled her eyes. I don't think that character would go after poor black people. Right. This is where you can tell that Candyman came from the mind of a white person. He chooses to haunt to disrupt the lives of blacks in Chicago in the Cabrini Green projects, who really right across the tracks are essentially the representatives, the sort of the folks who would have been responsible, their ancestors for his lynching. He is a personification of racism in the United States, like what it looks like and what it can conjure, like all that negative energy, like what does it look like and what does it do? Keep away from me! For me, it's a character. I don't live and breathe and die by it. I'm happy that I was able to do him, and uh, hopefully I did him right. It was very empowering. To Damn me, sure to did. Me to feel like we could, like black people can do anything. We're not in this box. We can be the Freddy of a movie. Ugh, real bees. Who was married? Uh, who was married to uh, Casey Lemons, who was in the film. And the original screen. Really, I didn't know Vondi Curtis Hall was her husband. Unfortunately, I think the sequels kind of get overlooked. It gives Candyman a sympathetic backstory. He is the spear that's conjured from the history of racism and white supremacy. Yeah, when they showed his backstory in that second movie, that was rough to watch, man. I feel like the sequel helps you understand the original a little bit better, maybe? The 90s were a renaissance, not just in film, I want to point out, but also in literature. This is the era that Spike Lee helped give birth to. Spike Lee was like the Terry McMillan uh, in film. Oh, wow. That's a hell of a comparison to make. You know, black people are going to see movies. There was a push for black filmmaking. started by like Spike Lee and John Singleton and people like that. And I think it was kind of a response to the 80s where black people were kind of marginalized in the early 1990s you kind of saw like a lot of black filmmakers kind of come into the fold and just not just make comedies and dramatic films but also horror films and i think what they were doing with the horror films at that time they were making movies that were kind of socially conscious and more directly in tune with what was going on in the outside world what you saw today young brother 
were victims, economics, environment, and Reagan novels. Joel, as the main character, this up-and-coming, soon-to-be minister, he goes and visits his cousin that lives in Death the by city. Temptation. I've never seen Joel this before. Do I, I see it all the time on it's either on demand or on Tubi. It's got Kadeem Hardison in it. I've never seen it though. It gets even more extreme than that because his literally his soul is at stake with with a demon who is like looking to immediately kind of eradicate him. It is super biblical. Is the chick from the Fresh Prince? She's basically the parallel of the devil. Death by Temptation is all about that battle. Between good and evil. So this is also a morality tale. These are the lessons that mirror so closely to what Michaud and Spencer Williams were offering up in earlier decades. I love that connection that Death by Temptation has with those older films from the 1940s. It was unique for the time because you weren't seeing a lot of black horror films made in 1990, if any. That's what makes it a real landmark. <laughs> I feel like Tales from the Hood did more to kind of cement black horror for the 90s. It's way ahead of his time. Still relevant today, man. I keep saying, uh, I want to do commentary for Tales from the Hood because it's so relevant with the problems of society today. There's four short stories with one wraparound story. My dad used to drag me to march after march. If it had black, colored, or negro in the title, he was a member. So when I, you know, started to look at horror as something to do myself i'm like well i gotta have something in there that we gotta do we gotta mix it up not just have horror for horror's sake it deals with spousal abuse and, and child abuse in the home yep it deals with gang violence yep it deals with racist politicians yep can't we all just god da- yo if i wasn't saying all of this deals with police brutality so all yes. of these things kind of intertwine and create this kind of supernatural tale to this day in retribution it deals with a lot of different things the anthology format is actually really good in terms of you can address a lot of different issues with short stories you have a racist politician an original american isn't it sound familiar anybody that's great i'd even vote for me is it really that far-fetched that someone would have that as a campaign slogan today? I always tell my kids, I'm like, you know, people in gray, the, the dead people in the spirits are not going to mess with you. Mm-hmm. It's living It's people. living people you got to worry about. Yeah, yeah. that's who you got to worry yeah. about. Absolutely. That's how we kind of twisted when we started to do tales, we gotta turn the tables and make the horror a redemptive. That's just nasty. This movie is kind of like helping us see justice happening where we're not seeing it happen outside of, outside of a movie screen or a movie theater. There's cops being acquitted and there's LA riots and it just seems like things are so hopeless but then you can kind of like exercise retribution in a horror film. I like that he used the word redemptive as far as um, the themes and the stories and tales from the hood. I like that. that are horrific. We're running around looking for ghosts and vampires when the vampire is you're married to him 
you know, he's sucking you dry, you know, and beating you, and also hurting and destroying your child. That God damn, they, yeah, they made David Allen Greer a bastard in that movie. I always liked David Allen Greer as a comedian. Yeah. But realizing what he could do as an actor. Yeah. That really, that really. And then I found out that he was Shakespearean, Shakespearean, Shakespearean trained. trained. Yeah, I. I <laughs> as I did I, just I, now, too. So I kind of knew David from damn. the comedic thing, but I also knew that he had this Shakespearean background. And uh, when I was thinking of, of who to play that part, I purposefully wanted someone that everyone looked at as a nice guy. There was an interesting Makes thing sense. that happened when we screened... Pull the rug from under people with the role. When David Allen Greer was first hitting Paula, these kids were laughing. Wow. And you know what happens, particularly I think as a black teenager, as someone that goes through the world and you're always on the lookout for how something is going to mess with you. You're not trying to show your vulnerability. Right. And the easiest way to do that is to, to laugh, laugh at something. Yeah. And laugh at something. As the beating went on, it got quieter and quieter and quieter yeah. until it felt like they were about to cry. When I rewatched this film, it really stands uh, head and shoulders above a lot of black horror uh, to that point because. In those four segments, what Rusty Cundiff is doing is using that metaphor to, to tell stories that were about real-life problems facing the black communities. It kind of became more kind of a genre classic or something that, you know, the black community kind of, like, talked about and kind of was kind of a word-of-mouth thing. But maybe it is because of Get Out that it got this kind of resurgence and then got a sequel. Absolutely. <laughs> it ain't over yet, bitch. Tales from the Hood 2, um, you know, Darren and I have been trying to get this thing made for forever. I think it's going to be quite amazing. <laughs> We're back to telling. I haven't seen Tales from the Hood too. That's I deal with some issues I've heard things but I didn't get a chance a to see it for bigger. myself. It's a different kind of tale story. It touches people in a different way. Though it is scary. <laughs> Demon Knight, let's go. Wait, these are a bunch of Is movies. Have you seen more women on screen in the 1990s? Yeah. Bayou, Casey Lemons, which is one of my favorite. Some people don't consider it horror, but I do <laughs> because it's just uh, really, it's one of those great interchanges of human horror and hints of the supernatural. During the time, it was still super rare to see black women be directors. So Casey Lemons really pushing to direct was really um, groundbreaking and really important. That's amazing. None yeah. of her knew she uh, directed Eve's Bayou. The whole thing is like this whole thing is so informative, man. It's it's really changing my whole like literally as I'm watching it, changing my whole perspective on like the craft and just film. From the script, it's just so beautifully written. That opening scene and and the the first thing you hear. The summer I killed my father, I was ten years old. It was just brilliant, and it was a a different kind of scary movie. It's a movie about 
what memory means in the eyes of a black young girl and how she tries to help keep her family together and also kind of heal any wounds that are kind of lingering within her father's I never considered Ease Bayou a horror movie at all. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to go back and watch it. I just... With one of his daughters. The Debbie Morgan character, he feels so, um, so much strength from her. Um, and, but you feel so much pain because of what she's lost. Sometimes I feel like I've lost so much I have to find new things to lose. Magic steps in to sort of uh, take the place of those uh, harder questions about what's really happening in that house. I think what Casey Lemons does and what she kind of inspired for a lot of the black women horror filmmakers that I talked to is we do have a story to tell and don't be afraid to kind of like, you know, oh, because a studio exec or higher ups may not like seeing an all black cast or a film centered around black women that I can't do this. And I think what Casey Lemons' film did, she says, no, we can do this. And to not be afraid of any pushback, to keep pushing for your story and your voice, what she did for a generation is tell them that their voice really does matter. Horrible, isn't it? There's Billy and there's Jada. Billy and Jada, do we have a deal? Ugh, she she spit right in that man's face. She called me Ernest. Uh, I colored my hair. What? Um, I hope I hope it doesn't mess you up too much. I, I made it kind of like platinum. I said, "Oh, Jada, Jada." I love that story. He said he's told that story on um the commentary. I can't really remember who else was on the commentary with Ernest Dickerson, but I love that uh commentary for Demon Knight. Chainsaws, gender in the modern horror film, and a final girl is basically need that the book. last girl standing. And the common theme was that they were all white. I know that the producers wanted another actress, a white actress, for that role, but um, I had just seen Jada in Menace to Society, yeah, and I just said, "Oh, she's my Geraldine." So awesome. I had to campaign hard to get her in there. I said, you know, it's the perfect setup because everybody's going to think, oh, <laughs> she's going to die. Yeah, right. She's she dead already. Right. You know, we know that. True. And she winds up being... I did think she was going to die when I first saw Demon Knight. That was just like, oh, crap. You wouldn't have seen that in the 80s. She damn sure did save the world. Because Breaker says, you know, he's like, what happens when he gets the key? And, you know, Breaker says... They bring back Sunny the darkness. And the girl with all the gifts. They're black women. She did black save the world. Seeing Sonat Lathan side by side oh, with Predator. Alien versus Predator. Killing aliens. I was just like, wait a minute. So her and, it, her and this Predator are going to start. <laughs> that was so. It counts. But I, when I first saw it, I wasn't a fan of her and the Predator running side by side. They should have had like a slow motion montage in a meadow of flowers. But it still counts. Black final girl. Just add Z. So, wolves with a Z. Bams with a Z. Ugh. Bloods versus wolves. So there's just Z. That's a movie for real? I'm, please tell me they just made that Bloods versus Wolves poster for this. It's kind of a hip, hip-hop kind of thing. You have rappers just showing up in horror movies. LL Cool J is in Halloween H2O. Which he did find in. Anaconda, you know, Ice Cube. Yep. Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff, 
And it's a send-up to the film Nightmare on Elm Street. From the ghetto boys who are from Houston who have really significant horror themes. It's kind of a natural pairing. They're fans, they're rapping about it, and eventually they end up on set. Bones. Ernest Dickerson also directed Bones. I think I said that earlier. Repeat myself. What drugs did to the black community specifically? We had Snoop Dogg as this title character. He was involved in gambling and stuff like that, but he somebody who always tried to give back to his community. Absolutely. Uh, but for me, one of the most interesting things about doing Bones was the love story. But just the idea, you know, of reviving a love that, that had been lost. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one of the things that the studio really kind of downplayed. Really? Yeah, when they, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they wanted kind of like a, a cheap horror film, uh-huh. you know. And I think we gave it more than they anticipated. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you this. If you haven't lived until you've seen Snoop Blush. Snoop, Snoop, first day Snoop had to kiss Pam Greer. For real? Oh, yeah, he talked about that on the GGN podcast. They were into it. I said, cut. Snoop. I said, you blushing, man? He said, hey, man, I grew up dreaming about this woman. I get to kiss her? That's a good day. But then things started to change. But that just goes to show, man, fucking studio involvement is just, it's annoying. Like, thanks for the opportunity, but let the, let's, let the, the creative mind be creative. Let the director direct. But also growing up in a housing project and seeing a film that says, yeah, we can be heroes too. Oh, Attack the Block. This Attack the Block, if anybody hasn't seen it, it is amazing. There's a young um, John Boyega in it. And the boy was born to wield a lightsaber because he's got this katana sword that he just whoops ass with. Boyega basically saves his neighborhood. Every time I see this movie, at the end, it gives me chills. Moses is in the cop car with his friend Pest, and all he hears outside is his name being chanted over again. Moses, Moses, Moses. His friend looks at him. He's like, hey, that's for you. That's for you, man. This is why John Boyega is a Star Wars, right? That's why he's this big star, because he looks up and he has this smile on his face, this innocent, pure, childlike smile. He gets to feel like he matters in his neighborhood. A lot of young black kids. Yeah, this movie was great. I think that's really the core. And it was vicious as shit. I didn't expect it to be, you know, the aliens to be killing these kids and these people the way they did. In the 2000s, when you have these more self-reflexive horror films that are looking back and saying, that was the stereotype, or that was the cliche, or that's the trope we are always relying on. So in exposing those kinds of well-worn, kind of well-trodden, um, knowns about horror, horror also had to catch up and mature if it was going to continue to thrive. It's not over. It's not over. It's just not yours anymore. Not sure what this movie is. Girl with all the gifts. A girl with all the gifts. Okay. I think this is on demand too. Really well done British horror film with this young, young black girl as the main character. It's after a disease that's hit humanity where it's turned everybody into like these feral. Animals. It's a zombie movie. Okay. Sounds about right. I need to check for this tonight. 
no longer us. But again, it's probably um, white people's fear, right? That they're losing um, dominion. Um, you know, that the manifest destiny uh, thing isn't quite working like it used to. That character was not written as black. That happened during the casting process. The, the hell did she eat? All that blood on her face. She just killed the audition. The girl so with the gifts. I have to see this. And it creates such a difference in the film to have this black child. I read the book before I saw the movie. So when I saw the movie and they, they cast a little black girl, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. We're alive. Yes. Is that Glenn Close? I talked to my character writer slash screenwriter. This is a sharper social commentary, even maybe than, than he had intended. To see a story about a character, a black girl who faces some insurmountable odds where it seems impossible, but you you come up with plans and you execute your plans. This is the stuff that helps us get through life. That's the kind of opportunity that I would have killed for in the 90s, reading script after script after script and wanting to read for the lead girl, but going, oh no, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm the friend, so I'm gonna say, are you okay? Oh, are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, six million different ways to This, bravo to this editor, whoever edited this documentary is pure genius, man. shifted from being the focal point of the fear, other, to being the heroes, right? To being the icons, to being the one that you and the audience are looking up to. That's been very exciting to watch unfold. If you have to ride in the back of the bus for 90% of history, it takes a little bit to get in front. True story. Get Out, I think, is kind of like a perfect movie of its time. It came out like the transition between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I remember when Obama was elected, they, people were actually having debates about whether racism is dead now and that sort of thing. It's a huh. post-racial world and all that. Whether racism was dead. campaign came along, I think the public came to be aware, like, oh, you know, racism still does exist. A horrific scene in Charlottesville, Virginia. The hate boiling over white supremacists and countered protesters fighting with fists and clubs. Confederate flags on full display. I think there's blame Just on both sides. Depressing. No doubt about it. Disgusting and depressing, yo. It sort of like shows you what, where the culture is right now as far as black men are concerned. Yes. And a lot of the fears that, that we go through uh, at being a, a, a part of the black race. When I think about the fears that we deal with, I think that anything that we suppress as people, any, anything that we push down and hold deep, it's going to explode. Um, it's wow. Uh, a nasty way if uh, if it's held on to uh, long enough so I think we need these these valves for our fears sink into the floor wait 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 wait, wait. yeah this scene was like an acid trip sunken place it's, it's something that we as a people always talk about 
Exactly. Like, like you know, it's like he told our secret <laughs> that that we that we do have a fear that these people <laughs> are trying to steal our souls. It's an auction. Mm. You know, it's an auction block. Mm. It's just disguised in a different way. Motherfuckers was out there playing bingo for parts. It's just what Maze has been doing through history. They've been trying to tell you. Oh, no. 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 No, 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 no. They've been sitting at the table with the white people and saying, look, we ain't gonna do this. Get the hell out of here. I think one of my favorite parts... That actress is great in this movie. I can't remember the actress's name, but the one that was saying, no, 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 and get out. I was like, oh, you didn't get that he was, like, picking cotton out of the chair? Or you didn't get, like, he killed him with a buck. Did you not know black men were called bucks during slavery? Yes, they were. God damn it, man. I'm like a sponge right now for this documentary. That goes to a theater and watches, you know, a white protagonist make dumb decisions. And that sense of marginalization, that sense of, oh, can we just, if there was a brother in here, that would never happen. That would never happen. If there was a sister, would never let this, she, she would be out of the house. Spoiler alert, but there's no good white people in this movie. <laughs> that white savior trope always pops up. There's always one good white person. So this is obviously this opportunity to use that to my favor. The audience is expecting that you have to have one good white person in the film, right? You know I can't give you the case, right, babe? <laughs> Look on Daniel Kaluuya's face when she said that. Yeah, it really is. But luckily we did, man. Everybody did. It broke barriers and opened up doors. We're cheering for Chris. That empathy that we have so often had to extend to characters who didn't look like us. White audience members were extending their empathy to him. The ending uh, of, of Get Out was very inspired by Night of the Living Dead. My man. Although I didn't necessarily know it when it happened. You know, it's common knowledge that my intention was to have Chris go to jail and, and that the cops would come out and take him away. Yeah. Thank God he didn't go with that ending, yo. The most realistic ending is he shot on the road. 